Good morning. My name is Dan Kent. I'm a teaching pastor here at Woodland Hills. Uh, could you do me a favor? Uh, if you saw Emily's sermon last week, could you clap? Wasn't that awesome? Emily, you rock. Isn't that great? Man. In fact, uh, Emily's sermon was so good. Uh, like the pastors were all watching saying, I don't want to follow that up. <laughs> How do you follow that up? In fact, as Rob said, first thing Monday morning, Greg called in, <coughs> I'm sick, I can't talk. Said, yeah, right, of course, yeah, I'm sure, yeah. No, I'm just kidding, he really is sick. In fact, uh, he did join us on Monday morning at our team meeting, and it, it, this is kind of what he sounded like. If you take a toad, and you force a toad to smoke 100 cigarettes, and then teach it to talk, that's what Greg sounded like. So uh, I think he's doing a little bit better, but he, he does still need our prayers, and I know he appreciates that. Uh, but, you know, I, in listening to Emily's sermon, she talked about uh, looking at Matthew 6.25 about do not worry through the lens of an anxiety disorder. I mean, how do you, how do you hear Jesus' teaching not to worry when that's what you do? You worry. And, uh, and it was a great, great sermon, and please watch it if you haven't seen it yet. Uh, but what I kept thinking about while she was preaching is courage. And in particular, her courage, because... First of all, just for coming up on the stage and sharing some of those things about herself, that takes a lot of courage to do that. Uh, and I know I've, I, there's a lot of stuff I won't share up here because it's really scary. Uh, and she did that, and that's very courageous. But also, the fact that she lived in Sudan for a long time. It's, it's not America there. It's different there. It's, it's a scary place to go if you're used to living in a place like this. And going into protests with water. That's very scary. I don't even have an anxiety disorder, and I don't know if I would want to do those things. And so I just kept thinking, wow, she's very courageous. And so I started thinking about the relationship between courage and worry, courage and fear, courage and anxiety. And of course, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about the martyrs. And the martyrs, a martyr is basically somebody who is killed for their beliefs, and the Christian martyrs, in particular, are known for a certain thing. Uh, and as I talk about these martyrs, it might be a little um, macabre. It's a little violent. So just be warned. I don't want to shock anybody with these stories because they're kind of gross. But the Christian martyrs, in particular, were known for their joy when they were being killed. And a lot of times these killings were very public because here's what the strategy was in these martyrdoms. The strategy was, okay, uh, I'm a leader of a kingdom and here's this religious uprising who's starting to influence a large portion of my population. I need to send them a message that this is not okay. And so they would take some of the hot shots from the movement and they would put them up on a post and they would light them on fire for all of their followers to see. This is what happens. Back off is what the leaders would say. And so they would do this terrifying death to scare these leaders into recanting from their beliefs and to stepping in line with whatever kingdom they were in. The problem with that, though, is that uh, Eusebius, uh, who's a fourth century historian, what he said was when the pagan leaders tried to do this with the Christians, it backfired. Because they would tie these Christians to a post and light them on fire and they would start singing and praising God and uh, preaching to the people that were watching. And so instead of creating terror, uh, they were creating enthusiasm for Christ. And so Eusebius said that these pagan leaders were just beside themselves and they were frustrated that they couldn't terrorize these Christians. And I just think that's so amazing. And you see this throughout Christian history over and over and over again. 
one of the popular stories, I think we've shared it here a few times, is about Dirk Willems. And Dirk Willems was uh, uh, in the 1600s. And he really kind of got turned on to the beliefs of Anabaptism and this idea that you should get baptized when you're an adult. And so he says, you know what, I'm going to do that. And he went and he got baptized as an adult. And the religious powers and authorities at that time were not happy about that. They said, this is heresy. And they arrested him. And they put him in this little prison cell in this tower. And Dirk Willems escaped. He escaped and he fled. And it's in the cold, bitter winter and he just starts running. Well, uh, the guard noticed pretty quick that he was gone. And so the guard started chasing after him through the snow and through the forest and across a frozen river. And whoops, the guard fell through the ice. <laughs> so Dirk Willems is free to go now. Except because of the love of Christ in Dirk's heart, he went back and he rescued the guard who fell through the water. And to show his appreciation, the guard arrested him and brought him back to prison where he was tied to a post and burned alive in front of all of his loved ones and all of his community. Just a couple short years later, these same, they're called Anabaptist hunters. They even had like a brand, like a a name. Uh, They captured someone named Michael Sattler. And this is kind of gross too, just a, a warning. But the first thing they did with Michael Sattler when they arrested him is they removed his tongue. And the reason for that is because they were going to burn him alive. And the problem was the same that Eusebius had. Whenever you tie these Anabaptists up and you do this, they start evangelizing and sharing the gospel. And they start praising God and singing. And it just defeats the whole purpose of terror when they do that. And so that's what they did. And... Um, and so, and there's just a ton of these stories. Even, I mean, this is like 400 years ago, but even in the 20th century and even today, martyrs are still being killed for their faith. And we get many, many stories like this even still today. And what I want to know is this. How do I get from here to there? How do I have that profound peace and that profound kind of calm in the face of such incredible stress and anxiety? Uh, How do I get from, you know, me, who, if someone shares a meme I don't like on social media, I have a meltdown. (laughs) How do I get from that to uh, praising God while I'm burning alive? Or how do I get from going to a coffee shop and having a tantrum because they don't have the flavor syrup that I want because of supply chain issues? How do I go from there to rescuing an enemy who is trying to capture me? What, what is the bridge? What do they have that I'm missing? Because I don't know if I could have that type of peace and calm if I was tied to a post. I just don't know. And, uh, and so that's what I've been thinking a lot about um, after hearing Emily's sermon. And I think there's a lot to this, but a lot of it has to do with Jesus, of course. And in particular, I think we see a big part of the answer in this passage that, uh, that we're on right now in Matthew 6, 25 to 34 which Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Now, in looking at this passage, um, there's some debate about what, do, what does he mean by do not worry here. And, uh, and I didn't know. I thought it was 
I thought it was unanimous, but there is some debate about what do we, how serious of a worry is Jesus talking about? And as I've read through some of the commentaries and done my own research, I'm of the opinion that what Jesus is talking about here is a pretty significant worry. Like um, the, the type of worry that gnaws at you and you can't stop thinking about that worry. It's like a fearful worry. It's a worry that gives you trouble sleeping. That's how serious this worry is. And he's talking about worry about very basic survival needs, food and clothing. And he, this wasn't like, should I wear the red dress or the blue dress? So that's not the type of clothing stress that he's talking about here. He's talking about survival. He's talking about like protection. A lot of the people that he's talking about are, are homeless. Their clothing is their home. And so he's talking about something that is just core to their very survival. And so when he says, do not worry about these things, if you listen to that and you say, man, that sounds kind of absurd not to worry about such basic things, they thought it was absurd probably on an even bigger level. What is going on here? What is Jesus saying when he, when he says this? Well, in order to kind of figure this out, I wanted to figure out, okay, what, what could he not be saying, first of all? And, and I think that what he's not saying, at least, is this, that he's not calling us to be emotionally numb. When he says, don't worry. He's not saying like, just don't have any emotions. That's not what he's saying. Because Jesus was a very emotional guy. Uh, you see him in the Gospels just shortly after at Lazarus's funeral and he starts weeping. Even though he's just about to resurrect Lazarus and bring him back. He's still overcome by the emotion of the moment. You see him time and time again. He sees the crowds and he sees how harassed and helpless they are. And the text says that he's moved to compassion and pity. Jesus is very emotional. So when he says do not worry, he's not saying don't have emotions in your circumstance. That's not what he's saying. Nor is he saying be apathetic about the dangers of life. He's not saying, hey, don't worry about it. When there are things to worry about. He's not saying that either because we see Jesus. He takes all sorts of precautions. He flees from uh, the adversaries when they're coming after him at certain times. And so he's not really saying that either. So what exactly is Jesus saying in this passage? This is what I think. This is how I've made sense of it. I think what Jesus is doing here is he's going after a deep, deep fear inside of us. He's going after an ancient fear. He says, do not worry about your life. In other words, he's going after the fear of death. That's what he's pushing back against, this fear of death. You have to push back at that because that fear of death, it is an ancient beast that has harassed people since the beginning. You see this all the way back at the very beginning of the Bible when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden and now suddenly they're going to experience death and they know death is coming. At that moment when they're kicked out of the garden and they fall, they immediately have this inherent scarcity. They carry it with them every moment of their lives. Inherent scarcity. I only have so much time because I'm going to die. And that reshapes everything that a person thinks, how they experience all their moments, and it affects us even still today. And not only is it historically ancient, but it's also physically ancient because this fear of death it emerges from our amygdala, which is at the base of our brain, closest to the limbic system, which is the oldest part of our biological system. It is deep. The amygdala, the fear in the amygdala wants to control you. It wants to help you survive. It wants you to be, to be self-reliant. It wants you to survive. And so it wants to control you. And 
it can cause a lot of problems because it wants to control you. And Jesus is pushing back on that. There's a lot of this throughout the Bible. Uh, Hebrews 2.14 talks about the fear of death and how we can become slaves to it. And, and I think that's what Jesus is going after. In fact, we know that this fear controls us. And we also use it to our advantage. And this is why you see every other week, maybe even every week nowadays, you'll see some story about some hostile country somewhere who's testing a missile. <laughs> We've had missiles for 70 years. You know, we don't need to keep testing these things. We, we kind of know how they work now, you know, for the most part. What they're really saying there is not, let's test this missile to see if it works. They know it works. What they're really saying is, look what we have. Don't mess with us. Be afraid. That's what they're saying. In fact, even Russia, uh, I think it was last week, one of their military leaders said that, hey, we might escalate to nuclear war over Ukraine. Now, and that's possible. And we live in a country that dropped atomic bombs, and that's horrific. And that is a real scary possibility, of course. But at the same time, what I know about military strategy, it's not a good idea to tell your adversary what you might do. <laughs> I don't think that was the point of him saying that. The point of him saying that was, be very afraid, is what the point was. He's trying to get people to do what they want him to do. Um, and, you know, it's not just big global stuff either. We see it all the time in, in the media. Uh, are you getting enough protein? <laughs> That's a pot. Oh, maybe I'm not getting enough protein. And have you ever, I don't know if you ever go to a health club, but you see these guys who are like all muscles and 400 pounds, and they've got that two-gallon jug of protein shake. And I always think, you have enough protein, man. <laughs> That's not your problem. You've got protein already. You don't need more. But there's, there's so many examples of this. Um, oh, here's one that I always think about. Uh, are, you, are you living up to your potential? That's one that, oh, man, I, that, I always wonder, am I living, could I be doing more? Could I be doing something better? Could I be helping something more? Uh, or um, are you saving enough for retirement? All of these fears, uh, if, you, if you reverse engineer these fears, if you dig down deep beneath these fears and follow them down, I think what you find, what's really driving these questions is this fear of death. And, uh, and it's not just like, as simple as the fear of death. A lot of times the fear of death comes around masquerading as other sub What's it? Subterranean, that's the word, subterranean fears, fears that are down deep underneath the soil. Like, for instance, you might find that it's self-preservation that is driving your fears, which is just another way of saying I don't want to die. Uh, or it might be that you're hoarding stuff, which is just another way of saying I want enough resources so I don't die. Or it might be that you're driven by opportunism, where you might feel compelled to steal something because it's there because you might not get another chance and you might need that and it might help you survive. A lot of this is just the fear of death. Even things like self-esteem and looking for meaning in life, if you reverse engineer these things underneath, you'll find the fear of death. And so, uh, and it comes out in really little ways too. Like uh, a couple days ago, I think it was Wednesday, it doesn't matter, but Barbara, who is my lovely wife, and I gotta tell you, I... Uh, I took my wedding ring off to take a shower this morning and I forgot to put it back on. And so Barbara was kind enough to make a, a, a wedding ring on my finger here with a, a marker. And uh, uh, she just, she lights up my life, you know. And she's actually on lights, that's why. You know, it's a, no, I'm, okay, okay, that's a, no, what was I saying? Oh yeah, so she confronts me 
She said, Dan, uh, boy, you've been complaining a lot lately. And I thought about it. I'm like, God, you're right. I have been. I mean, I've just been like a total crybaby. I mean, I've just been complaining and complaining. And, um, and I thought about it. And usually it's about the weather. And if you are in Minnesota, you guys know that this has been a really crummy couple months. And it's been like two months of just clouds. And I think like 5% of the time between now and like March 1st has been cloudy or has been uh, sunny. 95% of it has been cloudy. And it's been rainy. It's been colder than average. And, and I've just been complaining and complaining about it. And when she told me, Dan, you've been really complaining a lot. Well, I thought about that. And as I thought about that, you know what I discovered? Beneath my complaining about the weather, I was actually feeling like I was dying. I feel like I'm dying. I feel like, especially since the pandemic, I've been so sedentary. Just there's been the amount of sitting I do now compared to before 2020 is like 10 times more sitting around. And I just, I want so bad to go outside in the sun and to exercise and to run and to be healthy again. And when you have these chronic gray days that are cold and rainy, it feels like there's a force that's trying to kill me. It's trying to keep me from thriving and being vital again. And, and so even my complaining about the weather, deep down, there's a fear of death under that. And it, it, it controls us. And, and this is why Jesus is pushing back on this fear of death. Because it makes us vulnerable to so many different vices, to so many different principalities and powers that want to manipulate us into doing what they want us to do. Jesus is saying, don't get pushed around by that. Push back against it. Um, however, as much as we need to push back against the fear of death, we also can't just ignore and be naive about the reality of death and the reality of suffering and the reality of evil in the world. And this is why Jesus says in uh, John 16, he warns his disciples, he says, in this life, you will have trouble. Don't deny it. Don't run from it. Don't numb it. But expect it. Expect that you're going to have trouble. Because this life is really hard. And as I, I was thinking about courage and um, anxiety and fear, I thought about these three components that I think, if you reverse engineer the, um, the courage of the martyrs, I think you find these three foundations at least, and maybe more. But the first one is this. Courage starts with embracing the fact that life is hard. You have to embrace that. Uh, before Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, it says that he was distressed and troubled. And he turned to his disciples who were with him and he said, I am so overwhelmed with sorrow, I feel like I'm dying. That's what he said. He was feeling that life is hard in a big, profound way. His disciples didn't say to him, well, Jesus, um, whatever happened to do not worry about your life? Where did that go all of a sudden? His disciples didn't say that. So what's going on here then? Well, this is what I think. If you look at what Jesus did, I think it is really enlightening. What he does is that he dwells in his distress. He embraces the reality that life is hard. Uh, he dwells in that distress, but he does not let the distress control him. He has the emotions of the moment, but he is not had by the emotions of the moment. 
Instead, what he says is, even though I feel like I'm in so much distress and sorrow that it's killing me, not my will, but your will be done, Father. And he gets up, and he goes, and he does God's will, despite the horrific experience that he knows he's about to experience. And in doing that, he demonstrates this profound courage in the face of such terrible circumstances. And I think we see this in the martyrs also. It's not like the martyrs weren't afraid. Of course the martyrs were distressed and sorrowful. Who wants to be burned alive? Especially in front of their loved ones and their community. Of course they were distressed and sorrow, but they did God's will the best they could in the face of that. And I think that's what we are called to do also. Not to be ignorant or naive about the distress and sorrow that we have, but to do God's will even in the face of it. And it really does start with this idea that life is hard. And I think it starts there because, boy, we, especially in America here, we are so good at denying the, how bad life really is. We have so many different fancy distractions to distract us from the horror of the world that it's, it's, it's just gets so easy to hum a happy tune even when the world is as bad as it is. And, um, and, and the problem with that, I think, is this. And there's probably a lot of problems with that. But one problem with that is this. I think the more that we numb ourselves and ignore the bad of the, the reality the more insensitive we become to the good news. That is, the good news isn't that tantalizing to us if we aren't aware of the badness of the situation that we actually exist in. And it's only when we embrace the reality that life is hard, or as Greg likes to say, and I I love this phrase, embrace the suck, that now suddenly we can see the liberation in the good news that Jesus brings. Um, and so we have to face the fact that life is hard. And I, I, I got to say, in that spirit, in facing the horror of life, um, I, I, th- there's this picture that um, I saw not too long ago. Uh, and what this is, is this is a box of wedding rings from Buchenwald concentration camp uh, from World War II. And when I saw this picture, I, 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 I was struck with this kind of haunting like horror in looking at this. And as I thought about that, that reaction, I mean, obviously it's horrific. All those people were killed. Uh, and these are their wedding rings, you know? And as I thought about that, and I thought about my own reaction, I started to dig into that a little bit. And I think what I see there is probably my greatest fear. And that is the fact that each one of these wedding rings represents a person that we don't know. They were just snuffed out. We have no idea who they are. Uh, And they died, we don't know who they are, they died with no glory, no meaning. We can talk about Michael Sattler, and we can talk about Justin Martyr, and we can talk about Dirk Willems and their courageous faith in front of the crowd. And that's amazing, but how much harder is it to just die meaninglessly? Or as Miroslav Wolf put it, to have a fruitless self-donation, where you just die for no reason and people don't even know. That is so scary. So, However, we make sense of the courage of the martyrs. We also have to make sense of how can I have courage? How can I pursue the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount? How can I live for others in the face of a reality where there's a good chance that I will die a meaningless death? There's a good chance that my death won't inspire a crowd. It'll probably just be a thud, an anticlimactic thud. How can I have courage in the face of that? 
And I think that we can. I really do. And, um, and so the second kind of component of courage is this. Yes, life is hard, but we are strong in Christ. Humans are shockingly resilient. I mean, it's amazing how resilient people are. And part of the kind of encouragement that we get from reading survival stories of Auschwitz or sexual abuse survival stories or drug abuse survival stories is that we see, wow, people are really capable of overcoming some pretty profound anxiety, some pretty profound circumstances. And a lot of times people can even thrive in the face of that. And it's so encouraging to us because we can see, you know, maybe I could endure these bad things that I'm so afraid of too. Uh, And I've been lucky enough to work with torture abuse survivors, um, sexual abuse survivors, and each one of these people that I've known, I've just never not been inspired by their resiliency. And so, man, we are strong. But not only is human nature strong, but Christians in particular have a particular uh, blessed strongness, I would say. And and that is is this. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, 7-9 that those of us who are in Christ have a spirit of power, love, and discipline. And he says in light of that, join me in suffering, he says, because you can handle it, is what, what Paul is saying there. You can handle it. You are strong in Christ, is what he's saying. Uh, Romans eight fifteen, Paul says that when we are adopted into God's family, we are given a spirit that cannot be imprisoned by the fear of death. The fear of death cannot contain our spirit because we are strong in Christ. It's interesting, um, in in the passage that we're looking at today in Matthew 6, um, Jesus says, think of the birds of the air. Uh, God feeds them, and that's true. Um, God does feed the birds of the air, and I love all the songbirds, and it's just, it's great. But I have also thought about those birds, and the more I've learned about birds, the more I realize that uh, their lives are tough. It's not easy being a bird, all right? Uh, they are, because of their caloric demands, they constantly have to be eating. They constantly have to be finding nourishment. And also, they also have to be constantly evading predators. And somewhere in that chaos and madness, they also have to reproduce and find a mate. It's, it's not easy being a bird. In fact, I think that part of how God feeds these birds and provides for these birds is that he makes these cute little birds really, really tough and really, really creative. And that's what God does for us also. He makes us strong and strong in Christ. In fact, we are so strong in Christ that God trusts us with some pretty incredible responsibilities and expectations. Uh, in, in John 14, even though we know Jesus does all of these miraculous things and these great teachings, and he, he's obviously, I mean, the Gospels are known for their miracles and the incredible things that Jesus does and says. But Jesus, in his mind, he looks at us and he says, you will do even greater things. We are really strong in Christ. We are really capable in Christ. Uh, At the end of Matthew, Jesus' last words in Matthew, after uh, he was resurrected, is called the Great Commission, where he gives this profound responsibility to his disciples, and he says, go into the world and share the gospel with everyone. Baptize people. Teach people how to obey the things that I have taught. We are capable. We are smart. 
We are able in Christ. Um, and then finally, the last one I want to share is just because I just found this a couple weeks ago, and I, I never knew it, and it's just like this gem. But in Romans 16, 20, Paul says that in the end, God is going to trample Satan under our feet. <laughs> we are going to trample Satan under our feet. We shouldn't be afraid of Satan. Satan should be intimidated by us. <laughs> in, in Christ, we are intimidating. We are strong. We are powerful. And to be courageous, I think we have to know our own strength. We have to embrace that life is hard, but we also have to know that we are strong in Christ. Um, but that's not enough. We need more than that. We also have to have a picture of God that justifies our courage. And I've done some research on this and looked at the role of, of a leader's morality and the, uh, the, the, how people follow to a leader's morality. And so what research finds is that a person who's on a team, whether it's like a military platoon or on a business team or on a sports team, if their leader is moral and they think that they're morally good, a person will devote themselves a lot more to the cause. So if your CEO or if your platoon leader or your team captain is a good person, you are willing to sacrifice more for that team. And that's true. That's just how we're built. We, when, we tr when we can trust the leader, we will give more. And that is true infinite times over when it comes to how we picture God. And so we have to know that God is worth our courage. And we have to know, in other words, that God is good. And that's the third component of, uh, I think, a, a courage um, that we see in Jesus and in the martyrs. And we've always said at Woodland Hills here that there's nothing more important about you than your picture of God. We all have just a ton of stuff rattling around in our brains. But there's nothing more important up there than how you think of God. What's God like? That's the most important thing about you. Because what happens is you will progressively and continually be transformed into whatever picture of God you have in your head. Um, our picture of God really does shape every moment of our life, even if it's unconsciously. Uh, and I was thinking about this this week. I read a book on trauma. It's called The Body Keeps the Score. It's a really interesting book. And I was thinking about our picture of God and how it relates to trauma. And there's, you know, there's so many different traumas. There's a trillion traumas out there, and we, we've all probably experienced some level of trauma. And I thought about, well, how does your picture of God relate to healing from trauma? And this is what I thought about. Like, if you were to get a disease, or if you were to uh, be assaulted, or if you were, hopefully not, but if you were to lose a child to cancer, or even something worse than all of that, you're going to be profoundly traumatized. And we all agree that God is going to work to bring purpose to that suffering. God will bring something good out of that work. That's true. Everybody agrees with that. But how you picture God in all of that matters to your healing. If you imagine, for instance, that God planned that trauma, that that trauma was part of God's plan, that he willed it, that he ordained it, well, now that trauma is personal. It was meant to be. And can you see how healing from that, I'm stuck with a question that I have to answer? Why? Why did God want this for me? And, and I get stuck on this loop of lamenting there because uh, 
I need an answer to that. If he wanted this, I need to know why he wanted this. And so you get stuck on this loop. And, uh, and you can't let go of that until you get an answer. And it's really hard to trust that God because what traumatic thing might he do next? And it's really hard to move out of that. But when your picture of God is anchored in Christ, and when your picture of God is anchored in Jesus, and you know from what you know about Jesus that Jesus would not want to cause trauma for you, that, that Jesus does not plan evil for your life, well, now you can see that trauma and you can see that evil for what it is. Arbitrary, meaningless evil. There is no why. There is no why behind that. Which means that now you can process through that. You can process out of it. You can put it behind you. You can move back into the present and maybe even into the future and you can start pursuing the good things that God does will for you. And more than all of that, no matter how traumatic that event is, you always maintain this view of God that you can trust. You don't have to worry about what traumatic thing he might do next to teach me a lesson or whatever. And, and so our picture of God, it matters on a deep and profound level. And of course, you know, Romans 8, 28, Paul says that God is always at work to bring good out of evil. In fact, God is so creative and so infinitely intelligent that the good that he brings out of our evil is just as good as if he had planned it to begin with. And so he doesn't need to plan evil. He, he can make good no matter what happens. Um, God is always at work to bring about good because God is always good. Um, I love this. When Jesus said in uh, John 16, he said, in this world you will have trouble. What he says right after that, I love. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. And in particular, I really love that take heart because that's what we need to do. The world, through our fear of death, has infiltrated our heart. That's what Jesus is saying. And you need to take your heart back. Your, your, your heart has been breached with all sorts of fears that don't belong there. And you need to push those fears out. You need to take your heart back. It's very proactive. I just, I love that. And when you think about that in a proactive way, I think it becomes very liberating. And the Apostle Paul, I think, ca captures this enthusiasm. And he says this in um, 1 Corinthians 15. He says, God will put everything under Jesus' feet. Jesus will rule everything and God will be all in all. And you can almost feel Paul's excitement when you read that whole passage. And that's, you know what that is? That's Paul taking heart. He's saying, look, things may be really bad, but I know that at some point, God will be all in all and Jesus will rule. And I think, man, we can do the same thing. In the same way that Paul took heart and, and pushed back against his fears, and we can take heart and push back against our fears as well. We can shine the light of Christ on all of our fears in our heart. Uh, you know, and think about this way. Does Jesus cause disease? When you read the gospel, does Jesus cause disease? No, he heals disease, right? Okay, does Jesus invite demons into people? No, he pushes them out. Does Jesus uh, cause blindness? No, he heals blindness. Does Jesus paralyze people? No, he gives them their mobility, which they deserve, of course. 
When you read the Bible, here's what I encourage you to do. If you, if you don't take anything else from this sermon, take this. As you read the Bible, always be ready to look for opportunities to take heart, to take your heart back. So for instance, when you read that Jesus fed the 5,000 and when you read that he turned the water into wine, take heart about the poverty that you see in the world. Do you really think, given what you've read about Jesus, that poverty has a chance when Jesus is leader? No, of course not. And when you read that Jesus called together tax collectors and zealots to minister and to worship with him, and these are basically the alt-right and the alt-left of first century Judaism, and yet they all worship together, take heart. Do you really think that our silly political divisions can last under Jesus' rulership? No, of course not. And when you read that Jesus stormed his own temple to root out corruption, take heart. Do you really think that the wicked and the corrupt principalities and powers of this world won't be exposed under Jesus' leadership? Of course not. They are going to be exposed and they are going to be held accountable because that's what we see in Jesus. And finally, when you read that God is love, when you read that God is covenant love and God is a God of covenants, take heart. Do you really think that he's going to leave these love stories unredeemed? No chance. This box full of chapter ones will be completed in God. Take heart. We, what we know about Jesus and when he is in charge, we don't have to worry about the emptiness of this. Your own life, your great story, God is going to make sure that that ends gloriously because that's what we see in Jesus in the gospel. And so we can take heart about all of those things. Just in closing, the shocking kind of promise that Jesus is giving here is that we live in a big, big story. And death is not what it seems. It's... it's uh, there's a lot of illusory qualities to death. And Jesus is pushing back on our fear of death. And you see this in all of the writings about fear, in all of the writings about our courage in the Bible. You have uh, Paul saying, join me in suffering. Well, why would I do that, Paul? Well, first of all, he says, because you are strong in Christ. But he also says this, and Christ has abolished death and has revealed our immortality. And then in Romans 8.15, he says, God has given you a spirit of courage, and then he backs up this claim by saying that we are co-heirs with Christ. And Christ's inheritance is eternal. We know that. And if we're co-heirs with that, then we're eternal also. We don't have to be afraid of that death anymore, and we can live into that immortality. And I know, <laughs> whenever you talk about immortality and life after death and eternal life, um, that can sound too good to be true sometimes. And I believe it, but some days I believe it more than others. Okay? And so here's what I just want to ask you to do this. If you doubt this, if you doubt the, the possibility of eternal life, just ask yourself this at least. Is it at least possible that the reason why you're not sensitive to this possibility might be because you have a life is hard bias against it? Maybe it's just possible that there are parts of your heart that you have not taken back yet from the fear of death. Maybe. And maybe if you were able to take that back 
and take that heart back, maybe you might be more open to this possibility. Because as crazy as these promises sound, the fact of the matter is, if God is good, all of these promises, as crazy as they are, are perfectly consistent with what a good God would do. And so we can even take heart about our doubts about whether or not we could be immortal and have eternal life. So think about that. Also, it makes sense of the martyrs. It makes sense of their peace and their conviction. If they really believed these things that Paul teaches and what Jesus teaches, well, that makes sense of their amazing passion and their spectacular devotion. When Jesus says, do not worry about your life, he's not shaming us about our fears, but he's just calling us to put those fears in their proper place. Uh, What Jesus is doing in Matthew 6 is he is creating a vision of profound reprioritization. He says in a couple verses later to seek first the kingdom of God. And what that means is you're seeking God first and your fears are subordinate to that mission. And so you're putting your fears in their proper place. Jesus wants us to take seriously this amazing promise of eternal life and incorruptibility and to orient our lives, to orient our choices, and to orient our fears even to that amazing teaching. In summary, to summarize this whole message really, because there's a lot of stuff here, and I created this little mantra And I've personalized it, and it goes like this. And a mantra is something that you can repeat and meditate on. And I recommend thinking about this when you're stressed, when you feel in danger, or when you feel unfulfilled, or when you feel like your life is running out. Repeat this mantra. Life is hard. I am strong. God is good. Will you repeat this with me? Life is hard. I am strong. God is good. One more time. Life is hard. I am strong, God is good. And if you repeat that and you meditate on that, I think, for me at least, I think it's helpful. Thank you so much for coming out here. Um, Thanks for your prayers for Greg. Uh, He's scheduled for next week, so we'll see how that goes. And uh, if you are uh, coming next week, please let us know so that we can prepare uh, for the children's ministry. And on Tuesday, we have the MuseCast. Shauna and I are going to break down this sermon a little bit more, and I'll share some nuggets that I wasn't able to get to here. Also, if you have any prayer requests or prayer needs, you can pray online, uh, or you can come up front here, and there will be people to pray with you. And gathering groups. We have gathering groups. Look on our website about our gathering groups. I've heard great things about the gathering groups. I haven't been in one yet, but I hope to soon. And um, with that, go out and bless the world, and I will see you soon.